Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. Now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming in live on a Tuesday night as uh, getting started a little bit later than usual. I had uh, upset baby issues. Scott's dealing with his own issues over here in the Barzilla house, but we are uh, we are live and going. Yes, we are, Tim. It's yeah. It's it's been an interesting time in the family. I, I, I've kind of was remarking offline here for for those of y'all that Tim and I are in very different places uh, in our parenting lives. Uh, he has just welcomed in a new member of the family. Mine is going on her first, well, at least announced date. I think she's she's uh, kind of clandestinely gone out before, but you know this is the first time she's announced it. The old friend group hangout, you know, nothing nothing serious until now. Now we're rocking the high school letter jacket, huh? Yep, he's a senior, she's a junior, so you know, and and he's a kid we know. Uh, he's in choir with her, so uh, it, it's better than the alternative, definitely. He was a boy. She was a girl. Can we make it any more obvious? All right. So I know Tim. Uh, Tim did the rundown this week, which you know normally is something I, I kind of do. But he had a list of things that he really wanted to bring up in this episode, and some of them might turn into scumbags. Some of them might not. We we won't know until the end. Uh, but I'll let Tim lead off here since uh, he has got some things on his mind. Yeah, you know, Scott, I. I I, I I try not to come in hot, you know, in this in this podcast. I, I try to be, uh, you know, an even keeled guy, and and I try, you know, there's some scumbag segments get a little heated, but but I have not been more disappointed in in a Ryder Cup performance in my adult life. This was despicable, and. Everything that comes out afterwards just shows you how bad of a captain Dustin Johnson was. 
The moment we saw those pairings Friday morning, I shot you a text with what they were, and I thought it was questionable. Hey, like, you know, kind of kind of weird pairings on Friday morning, leaving some of our, our best players on the on the shelf. No, you had no um no Scotty. I'm no, I'm sorry, you know, yeah, no Scotty, no JT, no Spieth, no Kepka. Okay, then you go out and you lose all four. Then you go two and a half, one and a half in the afternoon. You hadn't won a single match yet on Friday. It, it, it's embarrassing. You know, there was no sense of unity as, as overall. If I haven't, the, the USA lost the Ryder Cup 16 and a half and 11 and a half. And Scott, you called it. Absolutely. Let's start off with saying you called it on, on last week's show by saying that you, USA might get their ass kicked by. Uh, by the Europeans, and they absolutely did. They never had a chance. They, From the moment this thing teed off on Friday, it was Europe all the way, and you could feel it. You could feel it going up into it. Something just didn't feel right. There was you know, a, a, a split in the talent of some of the USA's best young players are now you know, live guys, and Zach Johnson basically didn't put any weight into live events, and so the only guy who got in was was Kepka because of his major performance. And it's just next thing you know, this is a very bland USA team um, that that just got worked. All right. So uh, I got, you know, a couple of things here. Uh, one of them, just some observations. Number two, I think, is a question because I'm not up on my Ryder Cup rules. And, and so I'll be, you know, I'll be the first one to admit that. So the first thing I will notice is that how many of the American players played at that golf course in, in the tournament before the Ryder Cup? Yeah, zero. What are we doing? That's problem number one. In the what? in the three years before, because this year it was up against a featured event, like, okay, you could have played it last year, and no one did. In the last three years, I think it was like at least half of the European Ryder Cup team has played the, the Italian Open. And at least, you know, and sometimes in some years, there's not a corresponding event that's near you know, when the Ryder Cup is at that particular course. So, you know what, sometimes uh, you can't, you know, maybe you've played the course before, but maybe, you know, you don't necessarily know how it's playing right now. And, and you know, that's a given. But the Italian Open was right there. It was right there in the same month. What are we doing? You know. And then not only that, it's not only did they not play that tournament, they didn't play at all. Team USA had such a long layoff from the end of the FedEx Cup to now. All those European guys went out and they played DP World Tour events. They stayed fresh. Team USA took time off and they looked rusty. Well, so and here's my question. And so my question is when you, you sent me to Thursday pairings and, I, and, and you know they looked about the same. Now, for the record, both you and I said it would come down to the last three pairings. You chose America. I chose Europe. Neither of us were right. Even though I chose Europe, it was done by, you know, before those last three periods even began. My question is, are there limits on how often you can use a guy? Or is this the YMCA where everybody has to play an inning? Or, you know, what's the, what's the rules here? No, you can run a guy out there all five matches if you want. But, you know, they, they talk about fatigue or whatever because – you know, the guy's playing 36 holes twice on 
Friday and Saturday, and then you're playing an 18 hole match on Sunday. But also at the same time, you know, this, this is an all star team, right? So you want to get all your guys at least one, at least one time out between Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. They need to, everybody needs to play one of those matches theoretically. But what what the report was is that there was some kind of bug or something going around, a cold going around Team USA. So that was affecting when guys were available because Ricky Fowler didn't didn't play at all on Saturday. And so, you know, I, I hate to I hate that the live crap now gets brought into this. But like this team was was desperately missing a, a guy like a Dustin Johnson, you know, a seasoned veteran who's been there before, who you can put out in day one and you know what you're going to get out of them. You know, we, we've got these mega pairings that have worked before with um, with Cantlay and and um, Chef uh, Shoffley. Those guys hardly ever lose together. But you know what? Like they went out and they got beat two and one right off the bat. And they just came and they took it to him. I mean, besides Max Homa, who and again, we had guys who had no business being there. Brian Harmon is not a Ryder Cup player. I'm sorry, I would have taken Keegan Bradley over him. Guys who have experience, and it's a nice pat on the back for Brian Harmon, but he 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 had nothing. You know, Homa carried him in their in their matches together, and then Homa played great golf. I mean, Homa Homa is a, is a is a spark for Team USA, but other than that, every one of those guys should be embarrassed. Every single one of them, besides Max Homa, just. Flat out didn't show up to play, and, and and it was awful. So really, when I'm looking at it, and if you're just looking at the scoring, stepping away, the whole thing was Thursday. I mean, you start off down four nothing. From that moment on, it was almost a dead heat. And really, when you look at these two teams, if you look at just you know golfer for golfer, they're fairly evenly matched. So. As far as the captain's moves were concerned, I think they lost this the first day. Because when you start in that that margin, you're going to have to dominate the rest of the way in order to win that thing. And you just don't have the guys to do it. I mean, I don't, you know, if Europe had started in the hole, I wouldn't have think they would have had the guys to do it either. It was just too evenly matched. And so I guess, you know, the question is moving forward, is this, are you putting more of this on Zach Johnson? Are you putting more on this on the guys actually hitting the golf ball? I think it's like 70-30 Zach Johnson guys hit the golf ball. I think Zach Johnson's got to take a lot of the blame here. I think he his whole process about this has been so nonchalant. You know, some guys, when you look at like some of the guys who have been successful Ryder Cup captains, Steve Stricker, you know, Steve Stricker, had those guys take multiple scouting trips out to Aaron Hills in Wisconsin to to get ready, right? This is our home field. We're defending our home field. These guys never took a team trip over there. These guys, like, up until a, a month before, Xander Shoffley is, is arguing with the PGA Tour over money and whether or not he's going to even play on the team over money. And, and I get it. This is your job. You deserve to get paid. But there was just no sense of team or unity. This just felt it felt like it was just expected to go over, do your thing, come back, whatever. And it it, just, it felt like a chore. 
I don't know if, if you got that vibe, but it just never felt, I never felt the raw, raw of it. And, it, and, and to me, that feeds from the captain. You know, when you've got guys who, like, it's, like again, it goes back to your captain's picks. You had, you had guys you could have brought on who've got Ryder Cup experience, but you discounted where they played their tournaments when now we're at the point where this is all supposed to be under one umbrella again. So why are we discounting live events? I think, you know, there's a couple of things I'm thinking. And number one, I think next time around, you know, since Liv and, and PGA Tour are under the same umbrella that we won't necessarily have this problem. But really, the United States has had a built-in advantage as far as team unity is concerned up until this time because everybody on the U.S. team is playing in the PGA Tour. Europe has been more divided. Some guys are playing on the European Tour exclusively. Some guys are playing in both European Tour events and PGA Tour events. Some guys are playing in PGA Tour events exclusively. So, you know, that's hard to get that team unity. I think the also is when you look at the I mean, cat- but realistically, Scott, John Rahm, PGA Tour player, Victor Hovland, PGA Tour player, Justin Rose, PGA Tour, Roy McIlroy, PGA Tour, Fitzpatrick plays some European Tour Terrell Hatton, same thing, 50-50 guy. Seth Strack is a PGA Tour player. Uh, Tommy Fleetwood's a PGA Tour player. That's like 65% of their team plays on the PGA Tour. Victor Hovland lives in Oklahoma. John Rahm lives in Arizona. Like, these guys live in America. Like, Well, sure, sure. And as compared to past teams, that's definitely more of an advantage on their part. I mean, in the years past when I was growing up in golf, it was maybe 50-50, if not even that. I mean, I remember Seve Ballesteros came over and played in two uh, two Houston Opens because the Houston Open used to be right before the Masters. But that was the only really U.S. event he was playing in, you know, other than maybe the U.S. Open and, and any kind of preps for those. I mean, it was a big deal getting Seve Ballesteros. I, my thought is, though, the second thought is that Captaining these guys, you know, especially when you're when you're the top players in your sport, the captain has got to be a guy they respect. And it isn't necessarily how many majors you have. A lot of times it's a personality deal. Who are the, who are the guys on the tour that these guys who are in their 20s and 30s, who are the guys in their 40s that they respect? I mean, would they respect a tiger? I, I don't know. Um, it's hard to say, especially with what's going on with him, you know, off the golf course, you know, would they respect Phil Mickelson? Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of hard. So who are some, you know, U.S. golfers who are currently, you know, maybe in their early forties going up into their mid forties that you think the young guys would respect and listen to and, and would go to war for? I got one. I think, I think it's Stuart Sink. You know, I'm a big. I love Stuart Sink. I love his game. Uh, I think he's a pretty good guy. He's got his kid on the bag. He had a late career resurgence once him and his son started, you know, working as a team together. I think he'd be a great one. You know, I would have said, I would have said Freddie, but uh, I think he did a pretty poor job this week as assistant coach. I think Tiger definitely has the respect of everybody. I just don't, I don't know what that would look like, right? Like, is it going to be like, when somebody got traded to the Lakers and Kobe tells him, get ready to black out, you know, and like all of a sudden you're grinding like Tiger. Is that what Tiger is going to do to the team? I don't know how some guys would react to that. Um, 
you know, I think Strick, I think guys like Stricker are the right breed, right? Won a couple of majors here or there, but but made a career, a 15, 20-year career out of playing golf and keeping your card, right? So to me, a guy like Stuart Sink is a is a great example of that. Um, you know, what about uh even God, he used to look just like Coach Jess Jessic, uh Tiger Chris DeMarco. You know, I'd love to see a guy like Chris DeMarco uh captain a team. He was fiery. He wasn't the longest hitter in the world. Great short game. But you need guys like that, I feel like. You know, Zach Johnson was a flashy name, but I think he's still too buddy-buddy with everybody, right? You need somebody who's a little bit more removed, who had their success, uh, and has a level, like you said, of respect in the game that guys are going to listen to you as a captain. Like, I just... I think the the, the, the awkwardness started with, with Zach Johnson's captain's picks that were very much, you know, part of the old guys club, you know, nothing from the norm. We're going to, we're going to pick Ricky Fowler. We're going to pick Justin Thomas. Um, and, and here we are. Ricky doesn't play a single match on Saturday and, and he gives, he gives a four footer to, to lose the Ryder cup. So, I mean, well, I, if you could compare this across sports, right. Take a look at, who, you know, when, when former players become head coaches, whether that be baseball, basketball, football, who are the guys that are successful? You know, are you, know, is it going to be your guys like your, you know, your Peyton Mannings or Tom Brady's, or is it going to be the guy that was, you know, a pretty good player, but maybe not, you know, the best of players. And I think particularly when you look in basketball and you look in, in, in baseball, you can see, where the managers that are successful that were players are the guys that had to work a little bit harder. Right. The guys who knew how to get the most out of the ability they were given, not guys who like Michael Jordan, for example, who was a terrible owner because he just expected everybody to be able to just go do it, go do this, but not everybody can do what Michael could do. Right. But uh, you know, for someone like Dusty Baker, for example, like Dusty was a good player. He made it to the major leagues. He stuck around for a long time. He saw a lot of stuff. But he wasn't Hank Aaron. He wasn't Willie Mays. He wasn't Don Baylor. He wasn't Reggie Jackson. Yes, he was around all those guys. He soaked it all in. But that's not who he was. And he saw what it took to be those guys. He knew he didn't have that ability. He got what he could get out of his God-given talents. And now he helps other people do the same. Yeah, even if you look at basketball, even a guy that had success, like a Larry Bird as a coach, he just couldn't last. I mean, he was good while he was doing it for the Pacers, but... And that's the thing is you look at, you know, when I look at a guy like former Rockets, Scott Brooks, I don't even know if you remember Scott Brooks because he was a part of those title teams. He was part of the first one. He was the fourth quarter point guard on that first championship team. And he was just, you know, he was just a scrapper, you know, and you look at, you know, and I, I hate to point him out because, you know, he's a rival, but Scott Service was not a great baseball player. He's a decent catcher. Um, had some decent years with the Astros. Craig Council. Uh, Craig Council, the that's guy, good, you know, good the, infielder. You know, well, even you know, even a guy that's lasted, like say, an Aaron Boone. Aaron Boone wasn't a great baseball player. He had some all, decent years. All star years, yeah. Nothing, some, nothing amazing. Same for um, Tito Red Francona, so- Red Sox manager Cora. Yeah, Terry Francona was in, uh, with Cleveland. Even he was back to the NBA. Steve Kerr, right? Like, yeah. You know, yes, he was around title teams. He was the point guard of, of 
the greatest basketball team to ever play. Game he winning shot in one of the one of the NBA finals, you know. Yeah, but so, he wasn't Michael. He wasn't Scotty. He wasn't even Dennis Rodman, right? Like he's at least the fourth person you're going to name on that Bulls team. So I go with to me if you if you want my ideas, like you go to some of those guys in their forties who have had a good career in the PGA Tour. Maybe they've won a major or two, but um, definitely you know somebody who they respect. You know, and, and that's that's who you look for. Somebody who's going to work at it. You know, because to me, if you work for your card, you'll work as a, as a coach of that team. You know, he'd be a guy, you know, because, you know, did Johnson even play the golf course? You know, that, that's a great thing from a, uh, from a captain, captain's point of view. Hey, man, did y'all see, the, you know, this shot on 16 guys? You know, maybe, you know, if the pin is placed over here, maybe you don't want to go with that pin. Maybe you want to hit it over here because this is what happened to me when I played a practice round out there. Did you even hear that? I mean, that's, you know, it, it, the thing is, is that especially with the game of golf, how it's more of a lifelong game. The ability to sit there and say, hey, I've done this. You know, look at how hard I'm working at it. You guys need to come over. You know, to have them not play the golf course before that week is just plumb silly. I, I just don't get it. I don't either. I got a name I'll, I'm going to throw out at you, and you let me know yay or nay on it. Because I think this is one name that I think fits your criteria uh, and also fits mine as well. A little bit younger. Zach Johnson was 47. This guy is 45. Uh, I do believe he has a major championship in his in his lifetime. Um, Matt Kuchar, okay, 45 years old, has been around the tour a long time. Um, as as respected as anybody else is out there, I think Kuchar would be Kuchar would be a fantastic selection of that next one i, I think because other than that i think you got to start looking on the senior tour well because uh, yeah i think kuchar would be a good choice I, I um i have to admit i don't necessarily know exactly what his resume is in terms of like uh wins and things like that certainly in the case of the Ryder cup you kind of want you, you'd want somebody that has some Ryder cup experience which i'm sure he has i, I don't know what his record is in the in Ryder cup play but Actually, I'm sorry. Matt Kuchar is the highest earning PGA Tour player to never win a major. Um, and really, th- that doesn't matter. No. Um, his Ryder Cup record, I think, is um, he's played in three Ryder Cups uh, and five President's Cups, which is, you know. I'm good with that. I mean, I, I he'd be as good a pick as any. Uh, and we got to remember, this is two years down the road. So in two years, in, in two years, he will be the same age that Johnson is right now. So right. really, you know, that's that's a solid pick. Um, I was thinking, like, I don't know if uh, how respected somebody like a Lee Jansen was. I mean, he's old, a little older. Yeah, he's a little bit old. But really, that and we've seen this with uh, with Deion Sanders at the college level. He's older than people think, uh, but he relates really well to those young guys. So I don't know that age is necessarily the predominant factor. I mean, you kind of want to look at, you know, 
is this a well-respected guy? Do people in, do, do people respect this guy? And and that, that's I think the number one criteria. Number two would be you know what's Justin what's, Leonard. Justin yeah. Leonard hits yeah. a big, big rider. Yeah, up. Justin Leonard's a good pick if they respect 50, him. Fifty-one years old. Uh, you know he did go to UT. I'll hold that against him. Even but, the, but if they respect him, that's a good pick too. Because he's a guy that kind of fits that model of he got more out of what he had because he was not a long hitter. Even, you know, even if you go back 20 years, you know, to when he was in his prime and when people weren't hitting it as far as they are now, he still wasn't a long hitter. But he got a lot out of what he had. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think him or Sink, I think Stuart Sink, again, is one I like a lot. Or even... um David Toms. I think David Toms would be another good pick. I just he was a short hitter, even by the standards of two thousand and five. So I'm not sure how much he'd be able to relate to, you know, him going out and playing the course. What's his what's his insight gonna give these guys if he's in his prime hitting a two sixty off a tee and that's a, a five wood for these guys. Yeah, that's there there's a point there. There's a point there. But I think um the biggest thing is you gotta it, to me, the respect, you, you laid out two things. Number one, your captain's picks, I think, are so very important every Ryder Cup. But I think number two, just the camaraderie of, hey, let's go out there together and let's play. You know, because if you're a guy that hits at 260 and you can't tell the guys, hey, you guys get together. You guys play this course. All of you 300-yard bombers, y'all get together and y'all kind of compare notes. But that didn't happen this time, and I, and I don't know. You know, maybe it was the fact that Liv and, and the, the, the tour were separate this time around, and maybe nobody was going to captain this team to a win. I don't know. Because um, the Liv didn't seem to affect the European guys as much. Um, so I think it actually helped them, Scott. I really think yeah. it forced their hand to kind of turn the page on guys like Lee Westwood and guys like Ian Poulter that – maybe are kind of just automatically chosen as captain's picks because they're good in the Ryder Cup every year, guys like Sergio, and allowed them to allow some of their, their young talent to shine, right? Like they had some some guys like Robert McIntyre or uh, like Hogard or uh, Aberg who probably don't make this team if if the old guard is still there, right? But now you got some young up-and-coming golfers for the European team that just got their first Ryder Cup seasoning and it's a win and they know how to go win. And so I think in the long run, Liv is going to help the European team because it got these young guys some opportunity. All right. So I think, you know, we, we've kind of hit the hit the wall here on the Ryder Cup. I know uh, Tim's, I think his second uh, the thing that he wanted to look at, and, and those of y'all who are definitely astrocentric, had to enjoy this past weekend. So I think the the opening shot, and and we'll get to Alex Bregman and and the Rangers being butt hurt here in a minute. But would you consider what ended up transpiring? Is that more of an Astros coming in clutch, or is that more of the Rangers kind of just folding shop down the down the stretch? I mean, I, I definitely think the Astros are clutch, right? Like, they came in and they took care of business the last six games of the season. They won five out of six. They swept the last series. 
two or three against a, a, a Seattle team desperately fighting for the playoffs and, and three against an Arizona team that, you know, at the time we started this podcast was winning their playoff game four to three. So, you know, the Astros came in and they took care of business and they did what they needed to do. I also think the Rangers shit the bed. And, you know, I, one of my, one of my good friends I play golf with is a lifelong Rangers fan. And, you know, he expected them to miss the playoffs. He, he honestly thought that the Rangers would get, because we played golf on Saturday morning before they, they played the game and, and they were already, they had lost the first two of that series. He said, they're going to get swept. This is what they do. And so I definitely think the Rangers choked. I think, you know, the ball was in their court. All you had to do was win, win two games, right? Split a series and, and you're the division champs and you have a week off. But um, yeah, I, I think the Rangers choked, but I also think the Astros played clutch baseball. I think they did what they had to do. I think the bullpen was nails. And I'm, I'm very excited to have a week off and, and, and let this team get healthy and, and ready to go out and, and try and defend the World Series title. Let me tell you what I was thinking, you know, on Friday and, fr- you know, on Friday. So JP France is supposed to get the, uh, the first you know, go around against the D backs and he has a family emergency and, and we're just, we're hoping the best for him. I, uh, we, it actually, uh, it's, it's, everything's okay. What I read is his wife actually got severe, just really dehydrated. And because she is pregnant with twins, uh, she went to the hospital, but, um, fluids, you know, everything. Okay. She's back out of the hospital. And France was available out of the bullpen um, Saturday, Sunday this weekend. So, but there, here was, here's what happened. And I'm going to give Tim some credit here. Tim's been talking up uh, Jose Urquidy, you know, all year thinking, hey, you know, all he needs to do is just, you know, have a game on the line. And what does he do on Friday night? But picks his six scoreless innings. I would have not given any money out of my wallet. Season on the line. Yeah, I wouldn't. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't have given any money that he would have done that based on what he had done. You know, just virtually the whole season. But there he is throwing six shutout innings, uh, and and really the key was him living up in the zone. Uh, um, what I have an uncle that played, uh, you know, highly competitive baseball, and he was. And we had a sh- baby shower on Saturday, and he was just describing. Says, "Hey, listen, you know, when you're living up here ar- around the chest with your 93 mile an hour fastball." That's harder to get around on than people think. It looks like a great pitch to hit, and that's why guys swing at it. But, you know, most of those guys are going to pop that sucker up if they make contact at all. And that's where Verlander lives in the zone when he's, you know, pitching his best is that, you know, he lives up in the zone. So, you know, you got to feel a little bit better about the playoffs with the idea that Jose Urquidy is a viable starter. And Javier had a great outing on Sunday, you know, where, you know, he, at least it looked good. You know, he gave up no runs. Uh, so, and then you have that one to nothing win. I don't know, you know, on Saturday, I just don't know how, you know, how you pulled that off either. This is, this was a great, a great weekend for the Astros. Um, I love going to win, going away eight to one. You know, I love a laugher on the last day of the season. You get some key things where Bregman hits a home run the last day of the year to get to 25 dingers. Tucker has a home run, but then doesn't have a home run. It, he almost got to 30, 30, and then they kind of took that away from him. But um, Jose Abreu getting to 90 RBIs. I don't know if you realize he had more than 25 RBIs in the month of September. He didn't even hit 220 for the month. I mean that that is some impressive vulture like action, you know, for for Jose Abreu. And, and if 
he ends up having a strong two to three weeks in October. I don't care what he did for the rest of the year. I mean, you, we, you hit, when you do it when we need it, that's the key. Absolutely. We, we pay you to produce in October in this city. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the season has now really begun, right? Like, this is what it's all about. And, you know, that's what Alex Bregman said in that, that post-game celebration is, you know, we celebrate titles in this town. And, you know, I want to get in I, – I do want to get into the, the butt-hurtness of Rangers fans and the Rangers front office and all that stuff. But I want to stay positive for a minute. Because obviously we're excited, and you know we're not gonna we're not gonna get into postseason breakdowns or anything like that on this episode of this show. Because number one, we don't know who we're playing, right? We still have to have this wild card round wrap up. But number two, that's just not that's not what this is about. It's not what this episode is about. Um, I posed a question to you after the Astros won the division on Sunday, and that question was. Is Robert Ford a Hall of Famer? And while I think, you know, you know, essentially we'll we'll get to your answer, I want to run down since Robert Ford took over the Astros job in 2015, they've only missed the playoffs one time. They've had two wild card appearances, and they've won the AL West in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2021, 2022, and 2023. The only year breaking that streak was the was the COVID year, and they still reached the ALC, ALCS. They've reached six straight ALCSs and counting. They've been to back-to-back World Series, three out of the last four, four out of the last six, and counting. He's got two World Series rings. He's got, I think it was, what was the number? Four no-hitters? Uh, no, it's more than that. He had one this year, two last year. One with JV, one with Fires, one with Anibal Sanchez. I think it's six, maybe even seven. He's got playoff walk-offs. He's got a you know Correa hit two walk-off homers in the playoffs. He's got um, Altuve scoring on a crazy drop ball at the plate by Gary Sanchez in 2017. He's got memorable call. He's got a a memorable home run call and see you later. I think he at this moment in time has everything that a hall of fame resume requires for a broadcaster, except the longevity. Yes. I'm going to tell a story here in a bit, but um, I think he's certainly off to a good start. Uh, So he's a guy that's not even 10 years in number one. We have to get, we, we have to start there. Um, and I think some of it is just kind of a difference in the way the game is done nowadays. Um, I used to have a, a video game uh, called Old Time Baseball. Uh, that was back in the days when it was the 386 and 486, you know, even before the Pentium processor. It was a terrific game. Uh, you could pick any player. You could draft like players. And they had every player from 1871 to 1980, if you can imagine. Every single player. Uh, But then they also had historic great teams. So you could sit there and say, hey, what would happen if I put the big red machine against the 27 Yankees? Boom. There you go. Now, a reason I bring this up is because they had two announcers that were uh, that were doing those games uh, on the computer. It was Kurt Gowdy. It was Mel Allen. 
Okay, those are guys that were team announcers. But back then, when you were the team announcer, you were doing the World Series if your team was in it. And Mel Allen was the Yankees announcer. So guess what? <laughs> Mel Allen was doing just about every World Series. Uh, and that's where, you know, we get with, you know, some of our very, very famous announcers, um, you know, particularly, you know, teams that are in it all the time, like the Dodgers and, and things like that. And that's where those announcers get in. That's where you get, you know, a, uh, that's where you get, you know, not Joe Buck, but his dad, uh, Jack Buck. And you get some of those guys. Now, the, the story I was going to bring up is there is a guy I know, and I, I don't even know if he's still with us, but uh, his name is James Anderson. He started spearheading the movement to get Elston, uh, Gene Elston into the Hall of Fame. Gene Elston was the Astros play-by-play guy uh, from 1962 to 1987. So essentially, Milo Hamilton took his spot. And Gene Elston would be very similar um, to the style that we were hearing now, you know, it's a little bit of homerism, but not too much, you know, trying to just del- a smooth delivery of the game, you know, everything that's happening, you know, you get the excitement when the good stuff happens. But, you know, I think what I like about, the, about Ford and what, what we're getting now is he's just a solid delivery. I mean, you, you know, what's going on. And that's the number one thing when I'm listening on the radio is I just want to know what's going on. I want to know what the score is. I want to know, you know, what the situation is. And I he's can't tell pretty- you how many times, Scott, that I have the ability to watch the game, but instead I I just sit there and listen. I oftentimes I could put the game on TV while I'm cooking, and and I could listen. I could have it in the background and listen to to Callis and Blum, but Robert Ford's better. And I love Blum. Blum's fantastic. I think Callis does a great job as a TV broadcaster. But I think Houston is so blessed with Robert Ford. And I don't think people realize or talk about how good he is just as a broadcaster, as a guy who lays a game out there. You're right. He is a little bit of a homer. But you know what he's supposed to be? He is, he is the home team's radio broadcaster. He travels with the team to the World Series. You can listen to Robert Ford call the games in the World Series. You won't listen to Todd Callis or Jeff Blum. But you will get... Robert Ford. And so you're right. His he's so smooth and his presentation he is is impeccable. His preparation is unquestionable. And again, part of part of being the play-by-play guy for a good team means you're going to be in big moments, right? Like you said, we got used to hearing the Dodgers voice. We got used to hearing Tom uh, we got used to hearing um the the Dodgers guy. Um Ah, oh, it's going to piss me off that I can't come up with this. Ah, uh, Scott, you're muted. I'm thinking that's why I'm not. I, I'm blanking on him, too, at the same time. Um, he used to do night, he used to do the weeknight games. He's in. Yeah. He's in my favorite baseball movie. He's playing the he does the voice of the broadcaster in uh, for love of the game. I'm thinking. I'm. I'm, I'm looking because I, I, Vin gonna, Scully. I'm yes, Vin, yes, 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 yes. Okay, so Vin Scully, right? The Dodgers were all the time. You heard Vin Scully, and then also the Vin Scully was Fox Sunday Night Baseball uh, game of the week for a long time too. So you heard that voice, but because the Astros have been good and they've been around so long, I mean, around so long in the playoffs, the last six years or so, 
you've heard a lot of Robert Ford and his his name and, and his calls are just stamped all around baseball. Well, see, and here's the issue that you're going to have is that there are no stats for announcers. I mean, there, there's no, and, and so. But if char- you're going to go to the Hall of Fame committee and you say, I've got a guy who called in a, in a seven-year span, called two World Series, seven no-hitters, six, I'm sorry, four World Series, two World Series wins, seven no-hitters, six ALCSs, and seven division titles. That's, to me, a Hall of Fame resume. Well, so I'm, I'm going to throw another name at you, uh, Charlie Steiner. He's okay. been with the Dodgers the exact same period. The Dodgers have they've won one World Series, not two, in the same span that the Astros have won, but they've been in the postseason every year. So what happens if a Dodgers fan comes forward and says, I think Charlie Steiner's the best? I can't. I, I can't. think more broadcasters should be in the Hall of Fame. I, 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 as a broadcaster, I think there should be more of us, not me, but I think there should be more teams broadcasters in the Hall of Fame. Like so, These are the voices of our generation. If you are a baseball fan, this is how you fell in love with the game. And you can't tell me that the player deserves it, but the guy who brought this player to life doesn't. Well, and and as you point um and as you very well know more than than just about anybody who might be listening, how much more difficult the radio call is than the TV call. Immensely. Cuz the TV call, I can see it. I mean, I I I know what happened. So, you, the radio call, you have to set up everything. You have to, you know, paint a picture, you know, for the fan listening to that game. And I and, and when I said Robert Ford is a homer, I don't I don't think he's a homer like in the same way Milo Hamilton was a homer. Um, I think he is an appropriate amount of homerism. You know he's the Astros announcer, but he's not, you know, some of these jackasses who you know come on so like well every call that's you know against my team is wrong. I mean he's not one of those guys. Cough cough, uh, Dave Raymond. Cough uh, cough. Exactly. Um, but it took Gene Elston a solid 10 years and James Anderson was a guy and he was, cause he was reaching out to all of us who were kind of in this Astros kind of historical community. And he was a guy reaching out to all of us, you know, to get to pound the pavement, so to speak, to get Gene Elston in and Gene Elston, you know, and he wasn't, I think Houston was not his first job and I don't think it was his last job. I think he did a few national things up until about 1990 and I think he was, you know, he was calling games before 1962. So, you know, we're talking about a guy who had a solid 30 career year career in the business. But Milo is a perfect example. Milo didn't have any problem getting into the Hall of Fame. Now, is Milo Hamilton a better announcer than Gene Elston? For some people, yes. For some people, no. But what do we know? We know Milo Hamilton called 715. We know that he, you know, he has those other famous calls. I think, I think Ford certainly has that going for him so far. Um, but I think also the other part of the problem is, is that those guys like Vince Scully, who we couldn't seem to name. Sorry, folks. We, we had a collective brain fart on that one. Uh, but they're calling national games because that was just the way broadcasting worked back then. Uh, name I brought it up to you in text, Bob Euchre. Is Bob Euchre a Hall of Fame? He is a Hall of Fame announcer officially. Is he deserving of being a Hall of Fame announcer? Well, he was in Major League. He was in all those Miller Lite commercials in the 80s. So he's a famous guy. 
So people think he's better, but there are fans all across this country who listen to a particular guy who think that guy, he's, he's our guy. He's better than anybody else. And who's to tell them they're wrong? I'm going to throw an idea at you, Scott. I mean, I think there should just be a broadcaster's wing of the hall of fame. You know, um, maybe they don't, it, there more or less is. There more or less is. I think the problem is, is that they're taking one per year. I think that what you're arguing is they need to start expanding that. Yes. Like, I think it should be a room with like, okay, I'm a fan of the Astros. Uh, here's the Astros Hall of Fame broadcasters. Here is a touch screen with some of these guys' best calls. And then I go to the Braves and then I go to the Cardinals and then I go, you know, or, you know, what I'm sure I'm skipping teams in alphabetical order. But I'm just saying, like, you could, in today's world of technology, you could very easily set up some sort of system where, like, you have the Astros Hall of Fame broadcasters listed. Here's some of their best calls. Here's what they sounded like. Um, boom, on to the next guy. And that way, these guys' calls can live on um, in, in history as well, because I think. That's fun for the young kids to hear, right? Like, you you want your next generation to hear Milo call seven fifteen. You you want to hear, you know, Robert Ford's the Giants win the pennant. The Giants yeah. win the pennant. The Giants. Well, and and what I think is, and it's kind of funny is is that uh, Callis's dad, Harry Callis, he was an Astros announcer for a very brief time. But Cole he was forty five. Actually, he was the he was, first ever Astros broadcaster. So, but he is a the Phillies for most of his life, but that's not why he's famous. The reason why he's famous is he is that famous voice of NFL films. All of us have watched, you know, those NFLs, yeah, the frozen tundra land blow field and all that kind of good, you know, good stuff. It's just so idiosyncratic who gets to be famous and who doesn't as an announcer. Uh, there are a lot of these guys that have been doing it for a very long time. You've been doing it 20, 30 years. I mean, you got all the carries. I mean, you've got, you know, three generation of carries that have been announcers with the Braves and the Cubs and Cardinals and whoever else, you know, Harry Carey worked for. Um, but it's just so hard. Um, it's so hard for me to sit there and say, this guy's in, this guy's not in. Because we've been listening to Robert Ford. We have an emotional connection with this team. And so we have an emotional connection with him. And of course he came, he was happy enough to come on this show. I invite everybody to go back and watch that episode. That was a, or listen to that episode. That was a great episode with Robert Ford. But even if he hadn't come on the show, I agree with you. He, uh, he is probably, since I didn't listen, I didn't really appreciate Gene Nelson because I was too young. He's he's been the best Astros announcer I've listened to, uh, in my mind. And I I would agree with you. And I and you're you're coming from a, this is coming from a guy who loves Milo Hamilton, got into the business I got into because of Milo Hamilton. And literally when I met him, I I I, I word vomited all over the guy and couldn't even get out what I wanted to say. And next thing you know, I just said I love you, and. <laughs> You know, he just looked to me like, get this freaking stalker away from me. Holy Toledo, this guy's a creep. <laughs> but uh, they're like, put a blue cop by that one. 
Put a blue line by this guy. Take a, a true luck stick and stone crab. Get him out of here. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think Robert Ford's the best the Astros have ever had. And I think I, I, I have the MLB app and I pay for it every year. So I have the ability to listen to every team's radio broadcast. So every now and then I do listen to other ones. And you're right. You know, we're biased. But also, I just think Robert presents the game in a way that you're never in doubt of anything. Like, you're never sitting there going, what's the score? I just tuned in. What's the score? How many runners on? Like, he doesn't overhit it, but he hits it enough. He's not – his accent is – you know, yeah, he's he's a New York guy, but he doesn't – he doesn't sound like you guys, you know? Like, he is – you know, he's polished, and he's just fantastic. And, um, you know, we, we talked about him, you know, standing up for what he believed in during the, the 2020, you know, summer riots and everything like that. And, and that just makes me like him more knowing that knowing uh, everything we know about him. So, um, you know, let's let's transition from guys who are good at their job and they get attention because they are good broadcasters to supposed sports analysts on Twitter who whine like little bitches when their team can't handle business and then spend all the time in the world playing victim after they talk shit you know i'm a big f around and find out guy right scott like you Mm want to talk shit get hit right astros twitter is a place that number one saves receipts (laughs) number two if you come at us you better be prepared to to have something come back your way so don't pop off and talk shit and then expect to not get some shit thrown your way now i'm never a fan of going into someone's dms and harassing people but i am a fan of posting the clip that your own social media account posted of you literally partying and then running with it because that's what most astros fans did and then the rangers we were partying and we were just having a 30 minute gathering to celebrate and you're just sitting here saying we partied but we didn't party we didn't oh gosh tim my my favorite out of all that was um you know that that theme of the uh the the meme of the the woman who's like screaming at the cat yeah and it was her was W-E apostrophe R-E, and then the cat, were. <laughs> because, you know, I, I think somebody posted up there, like, the number of days that the Rangers were in first place and the number of days the Astros were in first place. But you know what matters, Tim? Who who's ended in, in first place. Yeah, who's in first place on the last day of the season. Who partied on the last day of the season? That would be the Astros. You know why? Because they actually closed the deal. And you know what? They the Rangers fans have done this for years. They've you know they they somehow have a Texas in front of their name, and they they feel like you know they're that the little brother that's always so you know so pissed off. You know that big brother always seems to be pounding on them. And they're you know what they're on the come. They're going to be a tough team from here on out. I, I'm, I don't have any illusions about that. They, they have, you know, probably maybe more lineup talent than the Astros have. The Astros have better pitch overall pitching. 
I mean, that's how we got to this point. Um, and the Mariners are on the come. We know this. It's going to be a competitive division, you know, for the next several years. We know this. So, you know what, Rangers fans, if you beat us next year, come at us. That, that's what, you know, that's what you should do. You know, bragging rights. But in this very moment now, and we saw they won the first game. If you're uh, just listening to us on a Wednesday, they've won game one of their uh, wild card round. They get one more win, and, hey, they get to play the Orioles. And, you know, who knows? You know, take your shots. But, yeah, you know, don't celebrate in game, after game 161 and then expect, you know, nobody in Houston to say anything. And it wasn't just after game 161. Now, let me, a gentle reminder to our listeners, I live up here. You know, I have the unfortunate pleasure of no longer living in Houston. And I live in the DFW Metroplex. And I think it's pretty easy, if you know me at all, to know that I don't support Dallas teams. If you look behind me in my office, you will see a collection of Houston sports bobbleheads. If you pulled up in front of my house, you'd see a 2022 Astros World Series flag. If you were to play golf with me, you would see an Astros golf bag accompanied with all Astros head covers on my driver at 3-wood and 5-wood. My wedding ring has Astros logo engraved on the inside of it, and I am not afraid to wear an Astros hat almost every damn day. So it's pretty obvious that I'm a guy who likes the Astros. No one says shit to me. From 2018 of me being here until 2022, I didn't hear a word. Didn't hear a word about it. But the moment the Rangers are semi-good, here they are ready to talk shit. And they, and they do it incessantly. The Rangers fans are ridiculous. They talk so much shit. And you know what? We just saved receipts. That's all we did. And we threw them right back at you. But some guy, John Moore, he's, co- you know, parentheses, the recliner nerd. Uh, it's playoff Tuesday. Let's trigger an Astros fan. Rangers are heading up. The Rangers are heading up in the AOS while the Astros have one last chance. Next season, the Astros will not only not only not win the West, but I imagine they don't even make the wild card. You heard it here first. Like, dude, this is your first playoff game since 2016. And what do you spend this morning doing? Talking shit. And then again, this is the first guy. I guarantee if I go to his account right now, he's going to be whining about Astros fans. These people are ridiculous. Like, they think that they live rent-free in our heads. Like, no. We don't care. We just like to put you down because you're dumbasses. Let's give a polite round of applause for the Rangers' victory in their wild card round. Hang on. One, had- more from, one more from John Moore. Call John. Get more. 725-25-25. Anyway, this is why no one likes the Astros. They didn't even win the West. The Rangers lost it to a really good team. Astros didn't earn the AO West. They weren't the best team. In fact, they were the third best team. Have to have another team win it for them. Okay, so uh, I was say a couple of things for Mr. Moore. We swept a playoff team in the final series of the year. Y'all lost three of four to a team that's not in the playoffs. Just throw that out there. Okay. Number number two. 
Well, you know, number two, you, okay, y'all you won your wild card game. You're up one nothing. Congratulations. You know who's not playing in the wild card round? The Astros. We're gonna wait to see who we get to play. If you want to talk some, if you want to talk some shit after that, you know, if you want to, if you get to the ALCS and the Astros don't, hey, bring it on. Let's go. But you know, until then, no, I don't want to hear anything because we don't have we don't have anything to do with you until the ALCS. I so, think one thing we have to remember: these are Cowboys fans, right? Like we have to keep in mind. These are the same America's team people. These are the same Texas is back, baby. This is all of them. They're all here doing the same shit, just a different sport. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of that, I think um, if we want to transfer on you, you mentioned um, there is a two and two football team in Texas and they are in South Texas. I think this is the first time we've been 500 since 2019. I think that sounds oh, no. about right. We would have been 500 in 2021 because we won the first game and then lost the second, so we were one and one. Well, okay, yeah, technically speaking. But um, I'll, I'll tell you what, though. Um, I don't think going into a game that I have ever been as optimistic as I am this week we're playing a two and two football game. So, you know, Atlanta Falcons are a decent football team. They're somehow favored. I, I don't know how that happened. Um, I mean, they, they've got a London hangover waiting for them. I, you know, they could have chosen a bye week following their game in, in London. They chose not to do that. So, okay, we'll, we'll see what they got coming in. But, and we could very well go and lose this game it's highly possible that the victory is not and never guaranteed in the NFL. And certainly this team is not good enough to be guaranteeing victories, but I can't remember the last time it would have to be 2019 that I felt good about a Houston Texans football team. And certainly probably the first time since ever that I felt this good about a Houston Texans quarterback. The footwork from Stroud on the second touchdown to Nico Collins. I watched that clip probably about 15 times because you can see him start to climb the pocket and then you can see him sense the rush and cut the climb short. And then you see him and it all happens in an instant, but he sets his feet and makes a perfect throw. I mean, his footwork, his pocket presence, his ability to feel and sense pressure when to move. I mean, we're four games in. He has not, knock on wood, thrown an interception yet. I mean, he's doing everything you got to do as a rookie quarterback to win football games. You know, make big conversions on third down, handle the play action well, uh, you know, sense the rush, be able to read the line of scrimmage and, and, you know, make the changes you need to make and don't turn the ball over. And what happens when you do those things, Scott? You give your defense a chance to go win a football game, but you know what? It's not on the defense right now. This guy's going out offensively the last couple weeks and winning football games for this Houston Texans team. And when you look at this division, um, I'm not necessarily scared of the Titans at all. Um, the Colts, that you know, that's one I'd like to have back because we, we very easily could be a three and one football team right now. 
And, you know, the Jags looked okay in London, but like that's their biggest home crowd they get all year. So let's see what happens in Duval. Yeah, I we were struggling, I think, last week's episode. We were trying to compare them. You compared them to Donovan McNabb. Uh, I compared them to Drew Brees. The thing is, the, the important thing, and I think I want to thank Patrick Mahomes for this, because with Patrick Mahomes, we've started talking about arm talent and not necessarily just a strong arm. Because, you know, guys like uh, Ryan Mallett, the late Ryan Mallett, you know, God rest his soul, he could throw the ball through a brick wall. But that Nico Collins pass you just referenced, that wasn't the hardest throw in terms of velocity. It was just absolutely perfectly placed. It was not only a place where only Nico Collins could catch it, but it was a place where he could catch it in stride and finish off the touchdown. And that's the biggest difference in this passing attack that we've ever seen. And this includes with Deshaun Watson, because this is a team that not only are completing balls, but they're completing balls in space, giving guys like Tank Dell, especially the opportunity to gain yards after the catch. Tank Dell did not have a great game. I think, you know, probably the Falcons uh, keyed in on him and just decided to take him away, which is part of the beauty of having him and Nico Collins on this team is that you can't take away both of them. You're going to have to pick and choose. Um, He had a couple of nice jet sweeps, which were like, holy cow, look at this. We have a jet sweep on our hands. You know, look at this offensive call. He had two of those where he gained about seven or eight yards, you know, just because he's flat out faster than everybody else. Um, and then, you know, Nico Collins is, you know, how many times has he caught the ball on the move, you know, able to make, you know, yards after the catch. It's just, we're on a different level at this point. Now, what I think is the most promising thing for this last week, despite the fact that at one point in the game, we were, had our fourth left tackle in the game at one point, fourth string folks. I mean, we are three minutes away from Tim and I getting phone calls to show up to NRG to, you know, throw on some pads and maybe play left guard. I, I don't know, but the running game came back. I don't know how much of the game you watched, uh, but, you know, Pierce and especially Singletary were making some really good runs where they haven't had those before. Um, so that's, you know, and then maybe we get some guys back. I mean, we're, we're after officially maybe Titus Howard can come back this week. You know, maybe Laramie Tunsil can come back this week. If that, let's go. Cause I mean, that's the difference. I think that one thing is if you can replace these injured linemen with the guys that should have been starting the whole time, put juice Scruggs in at left guard. I think, you know, cause let, let Patterson and, and let Patterson and Stroud keep that net chemistry that they have going between center and quarterback, but put Scruggs in at left guard. Can we, you know, have green, you know, go somewhere else? I don't know. Just not on the field. Well, green uh, is going somewhere else. Uh, he's on the IR. He is out for the season with a uh, pectoral tear. So he, yeah, he, he was in considerable pain. I know, I know that he never wished that on anybody, no matter how much they suck. And, but you know, we need some guys to come back, but you know, to me, if you, if you can run the ball, I don't know how you stop this Texans team. I think you're right. And I think what Slowick did that, that allowed the team to run the ball is they've kind of gone to a little bit more of a uh, that run and, stu- run and shoot style offense, right? Where 
they're instead of going the the classic Gary Kubiak pound the run and then run the long winding bootlegs off of it to open the stuff down the field, they're they're kind of going the opposite direction now, which is let's throw the ball and use the fact that we're throwing the ball that they have to play two safeties deep and that'll open up some abilities to run the football for this team. And you know what? That's what they've done. And good for them. You know, good for good for this coaching staff to recognize that um, hey, we, we gotta change it up a little bit. We can't can't just keep pounding it up the middle of halfback dive and you know counter plays like Bill O'Brien would. I mean, for three straight years we watched three yards and a cloud of dust out of Bill O'Brien through a litany of running backs. We saw Alfred we saw Blue. <laughs> Alfred Blue, we saw Lamar Miller, we saw Carlos Hyde, we saw the last years of Arian Foster, we saw um everything, right? Like, but then we go see these backs have good time with other organizations like what happened with Dante Foreman, right? Like we don't know how he did not know how to use running backs. He didn't know how to scheme. Oh. He didn't know, he didn't know what he's doing. We're seeing it in new England. So we've got a guy who understands right now how to use his weapons effectively to open things up, right? The passing game opens up the run game. It doesn't have to be run on first down, run on second down. And now you can play action on third. We can do other things. Well, what kills me about, you know, when you go back to the O'Brien years and this is where, you know, Lamar Miller is to me the the Rosetta Stone for how bad O'Brien was at, at a running game. He is a guy that just by sheer definition, you want him to have the ball in space. You know, he he's quick. He was, you know, he's elusive, not a very big running back. So, you know, what O'Brien does, let's run you between the tackles. That, that's what I want to do with you. And so, and I think what really happened this last week is Devin Singletary finally got going because I think Slowick finally realized, okay, this guy's not a guy I run between the guards. That, that's just not going to happen. So he gets the ball to him in space um, and he makes some things happen. He threw a touchdown pass. You know, uh, that was, you know, a trick play that actually worked. Dalton Schultz got his first touchdown as a Texan, you know, Hey, welcome to Houston, Dalton Schultz. Um, I don't know who wins the AFC South. I don't. Um, I could sit there and say I feel good about where we are, but can you say? I, I think you could say the Texans will have a say in who does. Sure, uh, and 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 we could very well win it. I think what ends up. Um, it, I think the Colts might be the biggest competition because I think uh, Shane Steichen has got them playing, you know, with their talent the best they possibly can. I don't think Anthony Richardson's nearly as good as C.J. Stroud, but Anthony Richardson's done some good things. And I think um, he's better than Bryce Young so far. Has looked, certainly, yeah. And 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 do they, you know, if they don't trade... At this point, if, if, you were, if you were the Chicago Bears right now, would you trade Fields for Richardson? I would probably trade my whole coaching staff. <laughs> That's that for too, sure. I mean, I think I think Richardson looks two or three games into his career because he was hurt better than Justin Fields does. I think he would. I think he and Fields are very similar quarterbacks, and I think if Fields were in the Shane Steichen system, he would look a whole lot better. Um, and so I, I think that's really the key. Um, but I was going to say with the Colts, because here's the thing with the Colts: the Colts were supposed to be a horrible team. So Zachary Taylor was probably going to spend all of 2023 on the 
physically unable to perform list, but now they're a contender. Do you bring Zachary Taylor back and, you know, try to win the division? If you're they already are, I think they already saw they, they're about to activate him and get him back on the team. Uh, yeah. I think I, Jonathan Taylor. You're talking about. Yeah. Jonathan guy. Taylor, not Zachary Taylor. Yeah. Zachary Taylor, the president, Jonathan Taylor. Uh, if they get Zachary Taylor out there, then they deserve what happens to them. Um, He's but, a coach of the Bengals too, isn't he? Yeah, you know, you know, actually, yeah, that's true. Different so, Zach Taylor. Yeah, Zachary Zach Taylor, the former president, as you mentioned, and then uh, Zach Taylor. You talk about a team that's that's in some trouble. Is the Bengals? You know, Bengals speaking of the Bengals, you know, uh, Burrow's been kind of banged up, and they just haven't they haven't looked good. I don't know, you know, what's been happening there. Uh, we talked about this last week. We had some surprises. I don't think. I don't think there are that many surprises in the league. I think Tampa Bay is, is one that's kind of surprising me about how good they've been. You know, three and one uh, look like the best team in the NFC South. But I think the NFL is shaping out about what you thought it would. Um, I guess the biggest news in the league is, you know, how the, the Taylor Swift fans can now can become NFL fans. And, and I want to get versa. into that a little later in the show because uh-huh. I have some, some thoughts on – on our NFL, uh, you mentioned team. last week. Now you did mention last week some people who were in the uh, in the commentary game who are kind of scumbags. So I don't know if we want to repeat that one. But- no, no, no. Uh, these are I got some scumbags in the NFL offices, but I don't think they're the broadcasters in this sense. But before we talk scumbags, I do want to say: Did you get a chance to watch the the Toy Story game? Um, for the London game on si- on Sunday morning, I saw clips of it. It was uh, fun. Yeah, Sawyer was- Sawyer watched it with me. Uh, then then we went to breakfast because it was Haley and I's uh, first wedding anniversary, so we all go out to breakfast and get back home. And I'm putting the TV on to watch the twelve o'clock games. And, and Sawyer's like, "Ooh, are you gonna watch football?" I'm like, "Yeah, actually, I am." She's like, "Okay, let me go get my dolls. I'll come out and I'll play and and watch with you." Like, Great. She comes back out and sees the live action football. And she's like, what is this? Can you put the Toy Story version on? And I'm like, oh, uh, I'm sorry. That was like, that was one, one game. She goes, why don't they do them all like that? That was so much better. It's just like, I am sure we'll get to a point where they will all be available like that. But I mean, it was really cool. They did a nice job with it. Um, Booger McFarland was not the guy to have on the broadcast. But other than that, I, I think it was fun. It looked really cool. Um, and the action when they, they did some side-by-side shots of like, this is what it looked like a toy story. This is what it looked like in real life. It, it, they did the same things. I mean, it was pretty cool. Well, I have to say the NFL does a really, really good job. I mean, they're, they're teaching a master's class and basically how you, you mass market your product because yeah, you, know, when you they, look at what they did, the Nickelodeon yeah, stuff, last exactly. year slime. And that's what I was thinking you know, with Nate Burleson, Nate Burleson, you know, average football player, but. I mean, he's he's on the Michael Strahan path because I don't know if you've noticed he's on the CBS Morning Show. So I mean, he's definitely kind of diversifying his his media game. Um, of course, JJ Watt. There's a reason why he wasn't on the CBS this past Sunday because he was in Houston being honored. Um, you know, for and that was you know a great you know a great moment, and it was his mother's birthday. So I, I don't know how much better you you know you get than that since having his brother playing in the game 
you know, him getting honored, mom's birthday, get to watch both of them, you know, great planning on the Texans part, but see the NFL just does this better than the other two sports. And, and, and that's just a perfect example. Absolutely. And, and before we get into scumbags, we had some amazing baseball careers wrap up on Sunday. And you talk about the NFL just doing it better than other sports. Miguel Cabrera didn't get a pitch to hit on Sunday. Uh, he got walked, and all the pitches were not even close to the strike zone. Adam Wainwright gets one pinch hit at bat, and his wife gives him a puppy on the field. Like, I mean, these are these are Hall of Fame careers that are ending. And, and in my opinion, besides my Homer thoughts on Jose Altuve, Miguel Cabrera is the best hitter I've ever personally seen. I can't think of a better all-around hitter than Miguel Cabrera in my lifetime. If you want to come at me with Pujols, I'm happy to entertain that argument because I think it's fair. But when you, I mean, look at the fact that Cabrera is the only person since Carl freaking Yastrzemski to win the Triple Crown. The guy, the guy is a first ballot, no question asked, should be 100%. Not a single person should vote against him for the Hall of Fame. And it was... Hum ho! Like I didn't. If I don't go search out anything about his last game, there was nothing, nothing on social media, nothing on Twitter slash X, nothing on like Facebook. Um, you know, I didn't see anything coming across. You know, a, a cut from the Astros game. Hey, let's show you how it looked like for Miguel Cabrera today. Nothing, and and I think that was really really disappointing on on Major League Baseball when you've got probably the greatest Tiger of all time, if not top two. And again, the greatest hitter of his generation retiring to little to no fanfare. And I get the, the Tigers aren't great, but that's on Major League Baseball to, to say goodbye to one of your greats better than they did. Because you know what? When like Mariano Rivera was retiring, they made a big deal out of what he got as a gift in every city, right? Like everybody brought something out for Mariano Rivera. And like teams did that for Cabrera, but several teams gave him alcohol and he is a recovering alcoholic. Like they couldn't even think to get him a gift he can fucking use. Like not a good job, Major League Baseball. Not a good job. And the Astros are not immune from that. They gave him a bottle of wine from Dusty Baker's personal vineyard. Again, the guy is a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll definitely go with you in terms of Miguel Cabrera's place in the history of the game. Um, I think that that's where it should be. I don't know about the greatest Tiger, because the thing is, you got to remember, he came up with the Marlins, you know, won the World Series with the Marlins. Tigers never actually won a World he Series. He went to World Series with them. He, he compiled a majority of his offensive stats yeah. with them. His best offensive years were them. Uh, we're going to go. I think there's some guys. I mean, if you're going to go back way back deep in the history of the game. I mean, I'm sorry, you know. You got Al K-Line. Ty Cobb. Oh, that's true. Um, I, forgot about, I forgot about Ty Cobb. Okay. Uh, okay. There's some guy. Harry Heilman played a little bit after, you know, is about a 400 hitter for a while. There, There's, they have a very rich history, but to see, that's part of what we've talked about before and to, specifically with Altuve and signing guys like, you know, Big, uh, Bagwell and Biggio long-term and, and, the reason why you sign an Altuve long-term and the reason why you lock him up is because then you get to have those debates later on. And so that our grandchildren, you know, you know, years later can sit there and say, Hey, you know, 
how does you know this guy compare to Jose Altuve way back when? And in and- two, 2012, he goes 330, 44 bombs, 139 runs batted in. He slugged 660. His OPS was 999. And you know what? He comes back the next year, and he's even better because his OPS is 1078. He still hits 44. He drives in 137, and he bats 348. And that was the t- and those were the years where I remember Trout had higher WAR. Back to back MVPs. Well, he doesn't play as good a defensive yeah, trap, but whatever. Because one of those years, I want to say they put him at third base, which was an absolute utter disaster. But we um, came up as a third baseman, and then yeah, they went and got Prince Fielder, and so yeah. they had to figure out what are we going to do with this guy? Because obviously, you're not going to take his bat out of the lineup. But then they had Victor Martinez, who could not play a position anymore because of his neck, so he had to DH. And so it's like we got to find a spot for him. Yeah, and I, but Adam Wainwright's not a Hall of Famer. I'm sorry. No, but he's a he's a he's Cardinals a, Hall of yeah, Honor or whatever. Yeah, you want to call yeah, it. he's a great he's a great player. I'm just yeah, we we need to slow the roll on that one. But you're absolutely. Oh, I was just saying, uh, Adam yeah. Wainwright is a top pitcher of the last 25 you're, years, like top 20 pitcher of the last 20 years. I mean, he's absolutely he's been really good. He's absolutely yeah, is one of the better you know top 10 starters. You know, at least yeah, starting pitchers, starting pitchers, and certainly in the last. 20 years. I w- I'll go along with you there. And when I you think- look at the Cardinals run of dominance too, it's like they've had always that one guy at the top of the rotation, right? Whether it was Chris Carpenter handing it down to, yeah, yeah. to you know, Wainwright was the guy. And he was also, Wayno was a closer um, on those early, he was a reliever on the, like the 2004 Cardinals team, I believe if I remember correctly. And then stayed on as it became a starter. And so Wainwright's been around a long time. I'm not saying he's a hall of famer, but it was a chance to, Say goodbye to a guy who's been around the, been around the game for a long time, been with one team for a long time, and, and I just feel like because both those teams had off years, um, baseball missed an opportunity. And as we were saying, the NFL just does it better. You know, the yeah. NFL say good, goodbye to people better. The the one day contracts, all that other stuff, they just do it better. That's the problem with um, the problem with baseball is that you know you mentioned Mariano Rivera, Derek Jeter got the same treatment. I mean, every, every, you know, series, it was a fanfare. And the thing is, is that if you look at Jeter's position in the game, yes, got, got a lot of rings, a lot of big October moments. Not going to take anything away from him. But Miguel Cabrera is a better player at his position than Derek Jeter was at his. I mean, there, there's no... Defensively. Well, I don't even know. Just better overall. Because, you know, Jeter is the worst defensive player in the Hall yeah. of Fame. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and Cabrera's gonna be up there. I mean, Cabrera's, you know, not a good defensive player, but the point your point is is that a player, you know, and think of it, we just had a guy pass away just this last week in Brooks Robinson, who, you know, many people consider the greatest defensive third baseman in the history of the game. And I think the numbers certainly bear that out. But, you know, we just generally don't do a great job of honoring these guys in the moment. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The NFL does a much better job. And even the NBA does a better job. I mean, when Kobe was doing his last go around, I mean, uh, he was getting honored. Uh, Miguel Cabrera is a terrific story. You mentioned the alcoholism, which I had temporarily forgotten about. But, you know, he's a guy that had his demons as a young ball player, overcame them. And, you know, put up, you know, as about a great career as you can expect to have. And there's so many guys, you know, um, one in Houston. I mean, we saw with Singleton, 
where those kind of demons kind of derailed his career somewhat and he fought to come back. But Cabrera is a guy that, that it could have gone the other way very easily and it didn't. You're absolutely right. He's a, you know, an opportunity for, for fans to, to say goodbye the right way would have been, and maybe those in Detroit who went to the game would tell you, Hey, we had a great send off for, for Cabrera and, and they would tell me I'm a moron for my thoughts on it. But you know what? I think on the national stage, it deserved a little more attention. And and I do I do think the Astros could could have done a cut in or something um, to to showcase that a little bit more. Uh, it does make me wonder when you know. God, I, I hate to think about it, but when the time comes for Altuve, um, you know, is he going to be a guy that teams have gifts for? Is he going to be a guy that is welcome to town? everywhere he goes or, or not. And, and sadly the answer is probably not based on the, the scandal or whatever. Um, speaking of which, Scott, do you have any desire to watch the new uh, PBS documentary coming out about the Astros? Uh, I don't. Yeah, um, I think I'm kind of with you on that one. I, I the problem is, is that it, it's just, it's, it's so far. It's so long ago at this well, point. Like, what more are you going to tell me? It's not even that. It's just that, they didn't, I mean, to me, Manfred just handled it as poorly as you possibly could. I mean, to me, even if he had leaned into it more, you could have suspended some Astros. And I think if you had been able to suspend some Astros players, like I would think, you know, to me, you know, Beltran ended up getting getting his. But, you know, to me, Marwin Gonzalez is a guy that obviously benefited from that. I mean, we can, you could look at the numbers and tell that, but we didn't investigate any other teams. It was all, it was going on. The Dodgers had credible accusations against them in that off season, in that, in that postseason. the Brewers accused them of cheating in that postseason. And, you know, we know what happened with the Yankees and the Red Sox. These are the three teams that the Astros beat on the way to winning the world series. So if we're going to consider them to be cheaters. Do we give the World Series to the Reds? You know, because maybe they were the only team not cheating in all of baseball. I don't know. Uh, I'm just throwing the Reds out there. I don't. I don't know that for a fact. But yeah, this is ridiculous. Okay, Tim. We've kind of been, you know, filibustering this thing long enough, so to speak. Uh, sorry to throw out a government term, but um, you have somebody that has been sticking in your craw this week. Who is that? person you know honestly scott as much as we were just praising the nfl and and all the great jobs that they do i've got an issue actually a couple different issues now with with the the nfl's front offices or you know tv people really the tv people um and and first and foremost the people who choose primetime games are absolutely killing me I understand the Jets got Aaron Rodgers and they were supposed to be good. I understand that the Giants went to the playoffs last year. I get it. But three out of four weeks so far, we've got primetime Jets and Giants games. What are we doing? What are we doing? I don't need to see Daniel Jones anymore. I really don't. He's so fucking bad. I feel bad that the Giants paid him. And hey, Giants fans, that's on, that's on you to deal with. But don't make us watch that crap. 
because I live in a world where I can't watch my team, the Texans, because they feel like we'd rather watch. Um, I, I don't even know what random bullshit game they put on here instead, but it wasn't the Texans game. But I got to watch Daniel Jones run around like a scared deer. Like, come on. It's absolutely awful. And then to top it off, the Sunday night game, and, and, and we've, we've talked a little bit about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, and I think it's fun. I think it's enjoyable. I think it's bringing new people to the game. I, I, I Sawyer sat there and watched Sunday night football and got excited every time Taylor Swift got on TV. But it's too much. It is too fucking much. We showed Taylor Swift way, way, way too much in that game. Every time Kelsey touches the ball, let's let's go. Oh, hey, what did what did what did Taylor think? What did Taylor think of that play? We're showing street signs with the name of songs that she wrote. We're using uh, open spaces as as often as we can. We are showing her entering the stadium. We are showing her leaving the stadium. I'm sorry. I thought I put a football game on, not E News. What in the world are we doing? I I get it. Too hot. Famous people are most likely banging. Awesome. Good from them. They're going to have kids that can probably sing and catch a football. And they'll probably be attractive children. Good for them if that's the way that it goes. I'm happy for them. I like both of them individually. And I think they'd make a wonderful couple. But I don't need all of Sunday Night Football to be about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Because it's just it's just too much. It is Kelsey's come out and said he's done talking about it during the season. He's got a football game to focus on. It's just too much. And you know what? Taylor Swift doesn't do interviews. Like she's not out there. Kelsey's got his own podcast. He goes on other podcasts. He's already tired of hearing about it. I am too. And I'm not even dating Taylor. I'm just married to a Taylor Swift fan. Yeah, I think um, that it is it allowed my daughter and I to connect on a football level. You know, because she's a she's a big Taylor Swift fan as well. But um, you mentioned there's two separate things you went into there. You went into I think the prime time schedule, and this is the problem. And the problem is, is that you and I could have predicted that the Giants weren't going to be good this year. If we could predict it, why can't the TV people predict it? Because it's uh, New York. They you know, want New York now. Now the Jets. I get it. Hey. Aaron Rodgers on that team, that was going to be a good football team. And, and nobody, you know, sees him, you know, rupturing his Achilles, you know, five plays into the season. I mean, that, that doesn't, you know, nobody's predicting that. So I get it. And Zach Wilson's just not good. Um, what it kind of reminds, the other part of it reminds me of, um, so I don't know if you ever watched football with Pat Summerall and John Madden where, um, who were doing their thing. But so back in the eighties, the big deal, cause you know, there were very few domes back in those days. So you had these open air stadiums and there would be a mention of the Goodyear blimp. They would point up at the Goodyear blimp. Oh, look, it's the Goodyear blimp. And I don't know if you ever read mad magazine as a kid, um, but I mean, the funniest thing is like the, they, they set the world record. Pat Summerall, the most plugs for the Goodyear blip during a game, like 43. And it was a bowl game against uh, uh, Arkansas P and Q against Texas Illiterate. And it was just, I mean, it was hilarious. But basically, that's what it is. It's like this Chiefs 
Jets game, even though it was close, is just not that entertaining because Zach Wilson's just not a good quarterback. He's just not. And so And he actually played well. Like Wilson actually played above what he normally like probably the best NFL game Zach Wilson's ever played. At times he looked like Aaron Rodgers. But you know what, Scott? At those times that he started to play well and he started to get into rhythm, that's when they broke it and showed Taylor Swift again. And you're just like, oh my God, yeah. I can't I can't even get into the rhythm of this fucking game. But- because every time the game gets some rhythm, we're looking at Taylor Swift, Blake Lively, and Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, and they're gonna do that all year. You know they are. And and She's got to stop coming to games. Like it's really at the like. Oh, it's bad. Well, or sit there and 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 get like into a private room where you could almost like watch it on TV or something on a monitor where they. they she can't. needs. She needs like a Miley Cyrus slash Hannah Montana alter ego that people <laughs> that people don't know about. So that way, when she goes out, she's not inundated with the. Oh my God! It's Taylor Swift. Like she could be. I don't know. Uh, Leslie, Louisiana. And <laughs> and just go out nonchalant. Just big cheese fan, Les. Nicole, Les, Louisiana. Nicole Nashville. Nicole Nashville. You know. Um, so here. You know. All right. So you mentioned we're bringing up relationships, which kind of gives me a good segue. Uh, and so we have a relationship that's just budding. Mine is a relationship that went horribly horribly wrong okay so to update the folks so the rockets are opening up their um their training camp now just so everybody knows rafael stone came out and said uh that kpj is not welcome at training camp and he's not welcome around the team he's still on the roster because i think he has some 1% 1% hope that somebody will take that contract off his hands. Um, but the thing is, is that they, they built in some, you know, some provisions into that contract to where it's not a guaranteed deal, which kind of leads me to the reason why Raphael Stone is my scumbag. When basically when he was asked about the culture problems on the team, when he was asked about, hey, why did you invest so heavily in this guy when y'all saw all these problems that were happening you know, on the way up to this point? We didn't have a culture problem. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any situations with KPJ, that Kevin Porter Jr. I, I don't know what you're talking about there. I, you know, he, he, he was good. He was fine. And all of a sudden this happened. Here's the thing. I think we all get why you traded for Kevin Porter Jr. We get it. He was, you know, probably a lottery talent who was taken in the low, lower part of the first round because he had gotten kicked out of USC. He had gotten suspended several times in high school. Okay, he's gotten he'd gotten into trouble in Cleveland. Okay, now you decide to bring him to Houston. You trade basically nothing for him. Okay, I'm okay with that. I'm okay generally with you taking a you know a lottery ticket on a guy who might be a superstar if he gets his head on straight. But at a certain point, you have to admit this didn't work out the way we thought it would. We made a mistake here. This guy, you know, he torpedoed our, our culture of our team. Maybe he set back 
you know, our rebuilding efforts a year. You know, John Wall maybe could have stayed on the Rockets, maybe could have been a starting point guard and could have been a better partner for Jalen Green than KPJ was. You made a mistake. It happens. And this is, you know, everybody makes these mistakes. You know, the the Texans thought they had a great guy in Deshaun Watson. Turns out he wasn't a great guy. But nobody knew that going in. I mean, you look at baseball, you know, um, I'm trying to think, you know, Mitch Molesky looked like a nice young catcher in 2000. Turns out he was a dirt bag and you, you couldn't, you know, have him on your team. Teams do this all the time. You have guys that are talented. You think, if I get a hold of them, maybe I can turn them around and make them, you know, a decent guy. And sometimes that works. Sometimes, like, you know, uh, Ron Artest or whatever that symbol, I can't even draw with my hand. You know, Ron Artest did some good things for some, uh, for some teams along the way. Rockets being one of them. And he was a guy that was a reclamation project. You can do that, but the thing is you have to be up front and you have to be honest when that doesn't work. And so Raphael Stone coming out and saying, I don't know what you're talking about with a culture problem. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You're a scumbag, dude. Just admit you made a mistake and move on. You are absolutely right, Scott. Hit the nail on the head. And you know what? You wouldn't have to tell people he's not around the team or anything like that if you just want to cut him. A month ago, when this thing first broke, instead of, like you said, holding out a hope that someone would take this contract off your hands, admit you're wrong and move on. But I think that's all the time we've got here for everybody tonight. Um, I, I appreciate everyone who, who hopped on and, and joined us this evening uh, and made us a part of, of their week because it's, it's, uh, it's been a fun one to discuss as, as we've had a lot going on. Absolutely. Uh, where can the folks find you? They can find me on Twitter or X, Tim underscore Costello 10. They can find the show on Facebook uh, at the Snaphook Podcast. And what about you, Scott? Where are you at these days? I'm still at S Barzilla at X as long as it's free. Um, and, you know, on threads on the same handle. Uh, you can also find the Substack, uh, the podcast on my Substack, uh, Thoughts of a Native Texan. And... You can find me at Better Red Blog as well. All righty. Well, that's all the time we've got here this evening. Again, we appreciate everyone who's made us a part of your week, and we'll see you next week on the Snap Hook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and his outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Hook.